Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be exalted, be magnified, be glorified in your word, through my words, let them be yours. Make much of yourself. Reveal your nature, your character, your mercy, your love, your grace, your kindness, your justice, your wrath against sin, your commands. Reveal to us what the Christian life should look like, how we fall short, and how we are to respond to that. Your people are desperately in need of you. So much more than we are even aware. And I believe we are very aware. Which tells us how much more of you we need. So, show up. I pray that your spirit would move. I think there are distractions today. I think we're feeling not checked in. And I pray that your spirit, whom we cannot resist, will check us in as you speak your words. Your word says that when we obey and trust you, you will act. So help us trust you as we anxiously and joyfully await for you to act. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. I saw a video, and this video had very, very convincing evidence that we never Landed on the moon. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you saw this video, you'd be like, I don't think we landed on the moon. It's pretty convincing. Do I believe that evidence? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was, like I said, it's hard to refute. And then I saw another video. And it was like irrefutable evidence that we did land on the moon. And I'm sitting there going... Uh, did we land on the moon? And then I thought of the most important question. Does it matter? <laughs> the answer is no, it does not matter. Does it matter what Putin is doing? Oh yeah, it matters. It matters a little. I mean, like, that's how we think. Oh, it really matters. It really matters what he's doing. It affects my life directly. I mean, have you seen gas prices? So maybe it matters a little because it does have an impact on your life, but does it really matter? No. I think we get wrapped up in things that don't matter. Because I know you're thinking, well, what if Putin sends nukes to America? Then does it matter? Well, of course it matters then. That is going to directly impact my life. If a nuclear weapon landed in America... Doesn't matter. I say no, doesn't. 
Does it have an impact on your life? Yes. Does it matter to some degree in your life? Of course it does. Would it influence the way you live your life tomorrow if it happened today? Of course it would. So does it matter in that sense? Yeah, but does it matter in the scheme of reality? Does it matter in the scheme of eternity? Does it matter in your spiritual life? No. It's connected to it. It's related to it. But my point is this. We get wrapped up in fear. We get wrapped up in everything that's going on in this world. We get wrapped up in conspiracies like, did we land on the moon or not? We get wrapped up in the news. Oh, what's Putin doing? What's Biden doing? What's the government doing? Oh, did you hear this conspiracy or that conspiracy? Have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? What's going to happen at the end times? We get all like inundated with this information that isn't even the most important information that we need. From conspiracy theories to political conversations, we get wrapped up in the news or any new idea that grabs our attention. Why? Why are we like this? How many Christians spend more time watching Fox News than they do in their Bibles? I think for a lot of Christians, that question is a convicting question. I'll give you some statistics. The average American spends two hours a day on social media. That's average, which means some people spend... I mean, I think about the number of people I know who spend almost no time on social media. So that's zero minutes, or maybe ten minutes. Which means to average to two hours, there has to be people at least spending four hours or more on social media every day. So the average, two hours a day on social media. And in addition to that, an hour and 10 minutes watching the news somehow through some source, whether it's your phone or the television or the newspaper or whatever. I'm not telling you that you can't spend time on social media. I'm not telling you you can't pay attention to the news or read the newspaper or watch the news broadcast. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the average... American spends 23 hours a week on social media and the news. And the average Christian spends 45 minutes a week in their Bible. So 97% of our free time is spent on things that don't matter and 3% is spent on the thing that matters most. Why? Because we lack discernment to realize that these conspiracies and these politics and social media are ploys to distract us from doing what we were created to do, which is sit at the feet of our Father and beg Him to speak His words into our souls. I am not telling you that you can't have social media. I'm not saying that social media can't be used for God's glory. I'm not saying that the news can't be used for God's glory. I'm not even saying that some conspiracy things could be used for God's glory in some small way. Although Paul was, what we'll see in the next few verses, in the next few weeks, is Paul's like, stay away from that garbage. It's a waste of your mind. What I'm telling you is what Jesus did. He said, I need 40 days. See you later. 
Apostles, you're on your own. 40 days to do what, Jesus? To hang out with my father. To hang out with God. To sit at his feet. To not eat food so that I would realize my absolute human desperation for God the Father? That's the example that's set. Look at the book of Mark. And you watch Jesus. It's a quick book. It's the shortest gospel. You read it. I always tell people who aren't reading their Bible, start with the book of Mark. It's quick. You see Jesus in action. The word immediately, immediately, immediately is all over the book of Mark because Jesus is like, immediately he went here, healed people, did this. Immediately he went away and retreated alone. Be with the Father. Refill, recharge, re-energize. Get filled with the Spirit. Spend, commun- spend time communing with his Father. Come back. Do more ministry. That's the example that Jesus set for the apostles and then the example that the apostles set for us. And that example is portrayed in the letters that the apostles write to the church. So we waste a lot of time doing things that provide us with nothing but foolishness. And then think about it just biologically or physiologically, the way that our brains work. If you are downloading, if you're spending 97% of your free time downloading information from the world and 3% of your time downloading information from God, which pieces of information are going to dictate how you think And how you think will dictate how you behave. So this morning, during announcements, I came up here and I said, there's a significant financial need. And I think, and I said, we want you to contribute to that need. And this need is immediate. It's a few thousand dollars. There's someone in this church who needs help. And we're going to help them. And the reality is when I think about standing in front of the church and making that announcement, my first thought is how do I defend against the arguments that are going to say, well, did you do this and did you do that and did you check this box and did you check that box? Well, do we really need to give? Can't, can't this happen or that happen? Why is this person in this situation? What did they do wrong? What's their fault? Have they fixed that problem? Like the fact that I immediately feel like I have to defend against those things tells me that I know that I'm going to stand in front of a group of people that I am concerned are not so biblically centric in their mind that their response is not, yes, I want to give how, where, when, and why. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter why, just yes. Pastor Mark says there's a need, I will contribute. Why? Because I read the Bible and it's all that kind of mentality, that kind of need, that kind of giving is all over Scripture. I'm not saying you can't be wise about how you spend your money. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask appropriate questions. I'm not telling you to blindly believe me and don't ask questions. But I know that the mentality of the church culture in America is the church is an organization, not an organism that is the body of Christ. So we combat that with the word. The church lacks discernment. That's why we let social media and the news influence us more than the Bible. Because the church in America lacks 
discernment. And the church in America lacks discernment because the church in America lacks knowledge. You need knowledge to discern. You can't discern good from evil unless you have knowledge of good and evil. And you can't know what is good and evil. And you can't have knowledge unless you're spending time in the only source of knowledge, the Bible. Which, according to these statistics, is abysmal. In Colossians 2.4, Paul writes to the church. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments would be persuasive arguments. And so let's understand what Paul says when, when he says, when he starts verse 4 and says, I say this, he's referring to what he said in verses, well, really back in chapter 1, in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2. So we have to understand the flow of Paul's argument so that we understand that he's saying, I say all these previous things so that I can say this, verse 4, to you. So why is he saying verse 4? Because of the previous verses. What do the previous verses tell us? Well, earlier in verse 2, Paul tells us that the reason he is willing to joyfully endure the agony and struggle of ministering to the church is so that they would gain, verse 2, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Essentially, Paul is willing to suffer so that the church would gain the knowledge of God. And, gain, and, to, and to gain the knowledge of God, you must have more Jesus because he is the source of that knowledge and wisdom. And since Paul includes his ministry of agony and struggle, because that Greek word for, for struggle in verse 1, the Greek word is, is agon, which we get our English word agony. So Paul agonizes in a, in a, in a joyful, enduring way the struggles of ministering to the churches. Since Paul includes his struggle and agony of ministry to the church as part of his argument, later in this sermon, I'm going to include my ministry as part of my argument for what I'm going to tell you to do. So the aim here is that we would pursue Jesus, find Jesus, and in doing so, gain knowledge. And that knowledge is going to give us discernment which is going to help us grow in spiritual growth, which is going to become a part of our sanctification. So you need this knowledge, and you need to grow in knowledge to do at least two things. One, knowledge produces right thinking, and right thinking produces obedience. You can't obey if you don't know what obedience is. You can't obey if you don't know what to obey. You can't do right if you don't know what's right, and you can't reject wrong if you don't know what is wrong. So how do you know what's right and wrong? You've got to read your Bible. So the first thing that knowledge produces is obedience to the word of God. The second thing that knowledge produces is in verse 4, and it's discernment. The ability to recognize truth from error is what allows us to avoid being persuaded by these plausible and persuasive arguments. That Greek, the, the word for, for plausible here really means persuasive, being persuaded by arguments that are not true and you can't tell if it's true or not because you don't have knowledge and your knowledge doesn't give you the discernment to reject the heresy or the false teaching. So knowledge is required for believers so that we are mentally capable of rejecting not only heresy but also incorrect interpretations of the Bible 
which are false teachings. In this text, Paul is ultimately refuting Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this heresy that, was, that, that is bolstered mostly on the idea of knowledge, how important knowledge is. The Greek word for, or the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. So knowledge is their heartbeat of the Gnostics. And they portrayed that idea of knowledge all over the communities that they invaded, including the church. And Gnosticism was invading the church. And Paul is fighting against the heretical Gnosticism that, was, that, that is ultimately postured on clever wordplay and rhetoric. The Gnostics were well known for their knowledge, and their knowledge was trusted by many people simply because of the way that they presented their arguments with prestige and esteem and eloquence. These people were master orators and excellent debaters, and therefore were trusted by many, and those who trusted them were deceived. Meaning it takes discernment from a source that is far superior in knowledge to discern the manipulation of the Gnostics. And the only reliable source for that kind of knowledge and discernment is Jesus, whose mind we get in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the best means to maintain gospel integrity and to preserve the purity of the gospel and to obey the gospel is to have more knowledge. And when I say obey the gospel, I mean obey the Bible, because the Bible is the gospel. There's nothing in this book that isn't about the gospel. And as I said last week, God himself is the gospel. The good news is you get God. God is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. The Bible is the gospel. Our obedience to the gospel is obedience to the word of God and all of its commands. When you obey the gospel, it's because you're obeying the Bible. If the Bible tells you not to get drunk, which it explicitly says, and you decide, I'm not going to get drunk, you have obeyed the gospel. You might argue, no, I've obeyed the command not to get drunk. That's obeying the gospel. Why? Because when you believe in the gospel, you obeyed God's command to believe the gospel. So it is belief that is the underlying reality in all of your obedience and a lack of belief is the underlying reality in your disobedience. So once you believe the gospel, you have obeyed the command to believe the gospel. And all subsequent obedience, all subsequent acts of obedience are a continuation, we call it sanctification, a continuation of obeying and because you believe. When you choose not to obey, it is an act of disbelief in the gospel. Doesn't mean you suddenly become unsaved. That's not what I'm saying. But our obedience is a continuation of our initial obedience to the gospel. So in order to do that and to preserve the purity of the gospel, maintain gospel integrity, and to obey the word of God, we need more knowledge. And if you're thinking, yeah, but doctrine and theology and knowledge, that's, that's for the pastors. That's for the theologians. That's for the authors. 
That's for the old church fathers. That's for the Puritans. That's for the people who spend their time doing ministry. The people who are supposed to teach. That's for them. Every single person in this room is a theologian. If you're an atheist, you're a theologian. You just have terrible theology. Because your theology is there is no God. So it's an incorrect theology, but you're a theologian. Every single one of you is a theologian. And your responsibility as a theologian is to have a theology that's good and that is biblically based and Bible-centric and Christ-centered and gospel-centric, so gospel-centric that everything in the Word of God causes you to know Him more and know Him better, believe the gospel, follow the gospel, and obey the gospel. So there's no excuses to not knowing the Word of God. There's no excuses to not knowing doctrine. There's no excuses to not learning theology. And if you think, well, that's, a, that's an adventure that's far beyond me because I'm just not a smart guy. So imagine you're in fifth grade and you go to your teacher and the teacher says, we're going to learn a new math concept today. It's called algebra. And you go, sorry, can't do it, not a smart guy. Teachers go, oh, oh, okay, I'm a teacher, I'll learn it. And then you just continue your life without learning it. Good luck in sixth grade, right? That makes no sense. And, and that's just math. Who cares if you know math? Right, teachers? Just kidding. So that's just math, right? Like, like we're talking about knowing the living God. We're all responsible to know the word of God. We're all responsible for our doctrine and theology. And we're all responsible to grow in it and learn more. The Gnostics, I think they would have been, I think they would be, if they were here today, they'd be easily identifiable by the church today because I think the main tenet of Gnosticism, which is a heresy about Jesus' deity, ultimately their main heresy is Jesus isn't God. That he's a lesser version of God. That he's kind of this like little itty-bitty tiny God that you, you, you need to get started to get to the real God, which is a heresy about the nature of Christ. And so if that kind of false concept or heresy about Jesus' deity were to get into the church today, I think the church would, and the church has, quickly extinguish that heresy to prevent it from spreading in the church. So if someone came in here and said, Jesus isn't God, we'd be like, ha, take a hike, buddy. Right? We'd be like, ha, we're so good. We're so smart. We know better than that, right? And we would be very happy to remove that kind of doctrine out of the church. It'd be easy, easy to identify. However, that heresy has become harder to identify as time progresses because the church has grown in wisdom over time and learns to identify certain heresies. So the enemy responds this way comes up with more clever ways to sneak heresy into the church. And what I mean is that the blatantly obvious heresy that Jesus isn't God wouldn't gain much traction in most churches, so the enemy adjusts and creates smaller, more palatable deceptions that are harder to identify for the church. And sadly, we eat them up. Instead of outright saying that Jesus isn't God, which is an obvious lie that we would reject, the enemy goes back to his roots and does what he did to Eve. He tells the truth. 
but he tells it with deception. In Genesis 3, 5, Satan told Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Technically, that's true. By disobeying God and sinning, their eyes were open to good and evil. Though it was true, it was deception and Satan is a liar and it was not God's desire for their hearts. It is those half-truths that require discerning knowledge of the truth to deflect the temptation to fall for deception. Now I'm going to address right now one of the most, I'm sorry, not one of the most, the most significant deception in the church today. I believe this is the most significant. You could argue with me that there are more significant ones. That's fine. I believe with all of my heart this is the most significant deception because it is about the nature and character of God. And when we get that wrong, nothing else can be right. And I realize that I'm going to bring up a little bit of a subject that is, requires way more explanation than I'm going to give you because I'm really not going to defend this doctrine much at all. But I want to warn you about that so you don't get wrapped up in the doctrine itself, but that you see the deception that is taking place around it. The most prominent half-truth slash deception that is rampantly flourishing in the church today surrounds the character and nature of God. What happens is by minimizing the grandeur of God, the enemy slips false concepts about God through Minor errors in major doctrines. The lack of belief in the church today and the lack of adherence to God's absolute and total sovereignty is a relatively new development in comparison to church history. Yet, it is the doctrinal position of most churches in America. That God is, every, most churches would say God is sovereign, but then they would also say that God does not elect people, but that people choose God. That idea is somewhat true and somewhat false. You do make a choice. And God sovereignly elects. And there are other tenets to that doctrine of God's sovereignty, which I'm not going to express right now, but it's a lot. And it all begins with the humanity's desire to be self-exalted. Even the most humble Christians I know who do not want to exalt themselves believe this doctrine because it's what they're taught. And it's a relatively new development in church history. Almost all of the greatest and most well-known theologians, authors, and church fathers throughout church history strictly adhere to Scripture's teaching that God is sovereign in salvation to the point where he not only creates individuals whom he has elected before he created them, but he also creates individuals whom he has chosen not to elect, yet still creates them, fully aware that his lack of choosing them will send them somewhere they don't want to go. And that strikes our sensitivities 
And it helps, it makes us feel very sad for people who are going to die and go to hell. And we hate it. And it seems so unloving and so unfair and so unjust. And so we love God and we love people just like Jesus did. And because of that, I refuse to believe that doctrine. And my response is, show me in the Bible where it says that. Your compassion for lost souls is noble and honorable, and I love it. And, I, and, and, and that compassion for lost people is totally a match for this doctrine of absolute sovereignty because God uses your compassion, your hatred for people who are, your hatred that people go to hell, you loving people enough to not want them to go to hell is the means by which God has sovereignly ordained you to tell them the gospel. And that perfectly lines up with God's absolute sovereignty in election. The enemy has warped our sensitivities to this doctrine of God's grand and supreme power and will to do whatever he desires with his own creation. And he's done it through a series of lesser and more unnoticeable lies about who we are and who God is. And he's done it over a span of centuries. As preachers and pastors over the last, we'll just say, 100 years, have exchanged the conviction of God's supreme nature for the sensitivities of how people feel about the supremacy of God's nature. And then the false doctrine of a God who is reactive to our choices has now replaced the truth about our God who is proactive in our choices. And so now we've got a problem with doctrine. Now we've got unbiblical doctrine running rampant throughout most of the churches in America, and I can see the product and the fruit of that false teaching, which I don't mean that the preachers who preach that are necessarily heretics, but I do think that they're wrong. And that wrong teaching about a God who is not absolutely sovereign, though they would say he's absolutely sovereign, then teach what is called Arminianism, which is essentially you have free will. To teach that produces so much bad theology that trickles down from the top. And so people have, I think, a right, have had in the past a righteous motivation to say that can't be true because God wants me to be like Jesus and that is to love people and see people saved and now you're telling me that God is not that way, that he doesn't want to love people and see people saved? What about the verses that says God desires that all people would be saved? Ha ha, what do you do about that verse? It says it twice in the Bible. I have an answer for that. I'm not going to tell it to you. I really do have an answer. Because the answer requires an explanation about God's two wills. Two wills. And I don't have time for that. So, I'm going to leave you hanging with that. I'll talk about it soon. Don't worry. But what happens is as people begin to complain because of their seriously godly motivations to love people and, and to love the God they think they're reading about in the Bible, the, the reality is they're, they're learning about a God that they don't read about in the Bible because they're not reading their Bibles. That's the problem. 
And I don't just mean reading, I mean studying. And as people began to complain about the unfairness of God choosing some for election and not choosing others, that's unfair. And then the preachers and pastors became soft over time to ease the tension of such an unpalatable doctrine. And the impact is a Christian culture that believes that its own free will over the sovereignty of a supreme ruler who dictates all of our realities according to his own will. And we minimize the power of God and we maximize the power of humans. And that will never bring good doctrine and bad doctrine will always produce sin. Meaning these preachers and pastors over a period of time, and not just the preachers and pastors, but the people who believe it, lost their conviction for scripture for the sake of the sensitivities of the people. A people riddled with sin. And the product is what we have today. Something that was unheard of 2,000 years ago, unheard of 1,000 years ago, unheard of 700 years ago. More churches reject election than believe it regardless of how incredibly supported the doctrine of election is throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is not strictly adhered to in the Christian culture in America. Why? Because it doesn't preach. That's why. Invite your friends who don't believe in Jesus to come to church next week, because next week I'm going to talk about how God chooses people for hell. Well, when you word it like that, it makes God sound pretty terrible, right? Absolutely. So why would you want to bring your unbelieving friend to this church? First of all, I don't want to say it that way because that does sound insensitive. And the reality is, every time I talk about it without giving a full defense for these doctrines, I think to myself, man, if they, that's why I told you months ago, just, just trust me, hang around. Stay with me for a little bit. We will cover the fullness of these doctrines through time. I believe if I dumped on you right now the fullness of God's sovereignty and everything I know from Scripture and I shared with you all the verses and explained all the reasonings and answered all your questions and gave you all the logic, you'd be like, too much, dude. Way too much. That should have been a five-month series on the sovereignty of God. So I'm aware that as we, as I give you piece by piece and bite by bite of this really heavy doctrine... It's a 20-ounce steak, and I'm giving you half an ounce every time. And you're going, well, I'm interested now. Can I have some more steak? And I'm going, no. And you're like, well, that's not fair. And I got questions because what you just said sounds unbiblical to me. So why would I bring my unbelieving friend to this church if they're just going to hear little pieces like that? That's the reality. It doesn't preach. There are mega churches. I went to a mega church. A couple of years ago, I had a Sunday off. I'm like, I'm taking my kids to this big-time megachurch. I sit there and I listen to the preacher give a speech because I can't call it preaching because he didn't use the Bible. He preached the entire chapter of Ephesians 4 in 25 minutes. It took me four months to get through chapter 4 of Ephesians. I'm not saying I'm better than him. Not at all. What I'm saying is he just kind of whizzed over it and the whole point was like, hey, spiritual gifts. At the end of the sermon, know your gift, use your gift. I'm like, chapter four is not even about spiritual gifts. That's part of it, but that's not the heartache. That's not the heartbeat, I mean, of, of that chapter. And then I look around the state, I look around the, 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 the building, the sanctuary, and there's thousands of people 
thousands. And that was one of several services they held that day. Uh, and there are multiple campuses. And everyone's hearing that message. And there was no heresy in it. There was no false teaching in it. It was not wrong. It was just not enough. It was weak. It was soft. It was palatable. It's the kind of church you bring your unbelieving friend to. And then that unbelieving friend goes to that church and they get saved at that church. And they go, this is what church is about. And they listen to the sermons and they go, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. It's all about me. It's about what I decide. It's about what I choose. It's about my choice. It's about me honoring God. It's about me being obedient. It's about me doing this. Oh, God's just there to help. Oh, and he gave me gifts. He must love me. And I get to have these gifts and I can use them whenever I want. And then that kind of philosophy or weak theology is repeated week after week after week after week. And the church gets bigger numerically and smaller doctrinally. I bet you there are more believers in this building right now than there are in that church right now. I was the only person in my entire section, and when I say section, I mean the, the section of that church that I was in was probably three times larger than our entire congregation. I was, and it was full. Seats were full. Everywhere. I was the only person within an eye shot that had their Bible with them. And I thought, they probably have it on their phone. No one opened their Bible. What a pity. You know why? Because they weren't asked to. You know why? Because they didn't Use a verse in the Bible. That's why I say it was a good speech. And then we wonder why the American church culture is so ridiculously sensitive to sound doctrine. Because sound doctrine is hard to swallow. Amen. And why don't they believe it? They don't believe it because they don't read their Bibles. At least if they didn't read their Bibles, they could go to church on Sunday and get some Bible. But they don't get it. If they even decide to go to church. And then we look at the Christian culture in America and we go, well, why is it the way it is? That's why it is the way it is. I am not trying to posture myself as like, oh, I'm one of the few great pastors who does the right thing. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is that if we want to have sound doctrine, you have to do two things. Number one, you have to believe me. Amen. Number two, you have to get in the Bible yourself. And if you are in the Bible yourself and you choose not to believe me because of what you read, then at least come talk to me and let's work it out together. That's what Christians do. And if you want to come to me and say, you, me, Bible, let's go. I'm going to go, oh, heck yeah, man, let's go. <laughs> I mean, and, and I don't mean like because I'm going to get you. I mean like... I, if you want to sit down with me and we're going to study the Bible together, I want nothing more than to do that with you. Amen. And if you show me that I'm wrong, then I get to learn and grow. Yeah. All day. Every day. I want that. So why does this happen in the church? A lack of discernment. And why do we so lack biblical discernment? Because we lack knowledge. So what can we do then in order to not only gain knowledge, solid biblical knowledge, 
And not only to gain discernment, but also to preserve the purity of the gospel, we have to spend more time in the Bible. I'm not just talking about reading the Bible more or giving yourself an extra five minutes. Because an extra five minutes is, what, would that bump you up from 3% to 3.5% of your day in the Word? And you're thinking, oh, God, he's going to tell me to. So instead of being on social media, I have to be in the Bible for three hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Why not? Why not? Give me one biblical reason why not. Give me one, re- one Bible verse that tells you that you should spend equal amount of time in, on social media and the news and equal amounts of time in the Bible and why you shouldn't spend all of that time in the Bible and none of it in social media and the news. Now, I'm not going to actually tell you that you should spend no time on social media and the news because those things can be platforms for the gospel and I'm all for you being a part of those things and I'm not going to tell you how to spend your time. But I'm kind of telling you how to spend your time, aren't I? I mean, I'm not telling you to get off social media unless you feel convicted to. What I'm telling you to do is reprioritize your life. Because for most of you, to exchange social media and the news and conspiracies and whatever other things you're spending your time on. Even if you bumped it up to 50-50 would be a massive change in your life. A massive reprioritization. And a massive benefit to your soul. And to your life. And to your joy. I'm not just talking about just read, read your Bible, just, just, you know, pick up your Bible, give it a few more minutes than you normally do, get up a few minutes more early, you know. I'm talking about living and breathing and thinking and feeling and caring about the Word of God. I'm talking about have such, having such an unquenchable thirst for God's Word that you simply cannot have enough of it, that you crave it morning, afternoon, and evening. That is not weird. That is Christian. That is Christianity. That is normal for Christians. Instead, we avoid the word of God for two reasons. Number one, we'd be confronted with our sin. We don't want to do that, so we avoid it. Number two, we'd have to confront our doctrines about the supremacy of God and the weakness of humanity and the inundated nature of our sinfulness that we are 100% full of sin, even though we're redeemed by Christ and now we're 100% righteous in Christ, that we still have this battle, Galatians 5, with sin. And that it's all over us and in everything we do. And that it is an endless, constant, daily, never-ending battle against sin with the righteousness of Christ in you. We're confronted then with our doctrines and we don't want to be confronted with our doctrines because then we have to minimize ourselves and maximize God and doing that will cause us to change our lives and changing our lives would be too hard because my life is kind of okay and easy right now and I don't want it to become radical because radicals Get killed at the stake. Like Jesus. So instead, we avoid the Bible. Or we read it just a little. And we read it just to read it. 
There's an entire chapter in the book of Psalms, Psalms 119, that has 176 verses in it. And almost every single verse in that chapter is, has a reference to the word of God and how important it is, how unsearchable it is, how helpful it is, how glorious it is, how beautiful it is, how instructive it is, and how much we should desire to know it more so that we would know God more. And the more you know God, the better your doctrine will be. Psalm 119, 77 says, your law is my delight. Can you say that? Is God's word your greatest joy and your greatest treasure? Does it surpass your love for your husband or wife? Does it surpass your love for your children or your parents or your siblings or your best friend? Can you say with Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart? Do you feed on the word of God? Do you need it more than you need lunch today? Are you now thinking about lunch today? <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We take that verse and we go, yeah, it means I should spend some time in God's word. We take that verse and we put it under our feet and we stomp on it like it means nothing every day of our lives. We spend way more time thinking about food, consuming food, talking about food, planning for food, shopping for food, centered on food than we ever do in God's word. Jesus was doing ministry, talked to the woman at the well. He got exhausted. He was done. The apostles came to him and said, Jesus, you need to eat. He goes, eat? I got food, bro. It's the word of God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus, in Matthew 4, 4, and in John 4, when he talks to the apostles that way, is saying, your daily sustenance to keep your human body alive does not compare to your need for this. Is that what your life reflects? Mine doesn't. I'm coming down hard on you guys, I know that. I'm being pretty tough. My life, I was thinking about starting this sermon by just giving you a disclaimer. I need this sermon more than any of you. And I need this sermon more than any sermon I can think of that I've preached in a long time. I'm very aware of how I fall short of the very things I'm saying. I'm not perfect. Neither are you. I give up, the word, I give up time in God's word to do plenty of other things. Christian brought up the March Madness. Instead of reading my Bible last night, I was like, gotta watch Duke versus North Carolina. Tell you that much. Can't miss that, doozy. Great game. <laughs> didn't grow. I didn't grow. Does that mean I can't watch it? That's not what that means. That's not what that means. We gotta reprioritize our lives. we got to reprioritize our lives. How many times have you been sitting in a sermon and waiting for it to end because you're anxious to eat lunch after church? Because you got plans this afternoon. Because you're worried about the, how long the sermon's going. Oh, you know, like in, in, in an hour-long sermon. You guys realize that an hour-long sermon 100 years ago was absolutely normal and totally expected. And now today it's like 20 minutes is the norm. 30 minutes max. And yes, I preach long, and I know it, and I know some of you might not like it, and that's fine, but you come anyway, so you're just confirming to me that I should keep doing it. 
So, so 30 minutes, you should get up and walk out if you want. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. And I realize it, but I'm, you know, my mentality, honestly, I know, like, if we want the church to grow, if we want more people to come, then we should do shorter sermons that, that, are more, that, that allow people to kind of just, you know, get there and, and get their little thing, and then go, and that's fine, and, and, and you, can do, you can say a lot of good things in 30 minutes. I get all that. I get all that. But man, when I think about how much time we spend in the Word, I'm going, I should preach for two hours just to make up some difference. I just know you couldn't sit through it. And if you wanted, I'd do a 15-minute intermission and do part two every Sunday. I would. I, I would do it. I would do it. You just have to ask. You just have to ask. Anyone want to ask? Just kidding. <laughs> no one wants to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. So, do you realize that, that to sit here and be like, can he just be done so I can go do this? That that's sin? That that's essentially sin? And I, I'm not going to, maybe your motivation is holy. I don't know, but it's probably sin to desire anything more than the word of God. I'm not saying you cannot desire to eat or have food or love your family or have other things in life that you love. Obviously you can. But Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then, he's just saying, I'm going to take care of you. Sometimes my kids will have like lunch at 3 and then dinner at 6 and at like 4.30, like, I'm so hungry. I'm like, we're going to eat soon, like in an hour and a half. And I'm like, you need to eat every hour? I think you're going to survive. There was a man who weighed 600 pounds and they put him on a water diet and all he did, all he consumed for an entire year was water. No food for an entire year and he lived. I told my son, I said, I think you're going to make it the next hour and a half. <laughs> You'll be okay. You don't, God's going to take care of your needs. Wherever you need to go right now, you don't need to go there right now. You need this. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything you need, he will take care of. Look at the lilies in the field, how he clothes them more beautifully than he clothed Solomon, and they don't ask for a thing, and yet your father takes care of them. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, yet your father feeds them. How much more are you to him? That's Matthew 6. Jesus concludes that with seek first the kingdom of God. Food, clothes, tomorrow, I got you. Seek me first. Instead of letting your heart convince you that you just want the sermon to end so you can go on with your regular day, what if we decided that we find it to be a sacrificial joy to endure hunger and live with patience just as Paul did so many times in order to be fed what matters most, the word of God? What if, instead of letting our hearts convince us that we need just a few more minutes of sleep, what if we decided to find it to be a sacrificial joy to wake up 30 minutes earlier to spend that extra 30 minutes in God's word? What if we develop the habitual attitude of sacrificial joy in all things in our life so that we could find more opportunities to feed on God's word and then do what God's word commands? What if? Like, what if? Do you hear what I'm suggesting? Do you know what I'm asking? I'm asking. What if the church was more like Jesus?
craving communion with the Father more than even food that we need to keep us alive? What if? Instead, we give them a few minutes of our day at best. Most Christians don't even look at their Bibles except on Sunday mornings. I say most. I don't know statistics there. A lot. Enough to be concerning, at least. And I'd venture to ask if those people are even Christians. Oh, you can't make that assumption, Pastor Mark. I'm not making an assumption, but I gotta ask. I gotta ask. I'm not assuming they're not saved. I just gotta ask. Are you? If I said to you, you need to spend more time with your wife. You wouldn't go, dude. No, no, I don't. You want a better marriage? Spend more time with your wife. You're all going to go, I agree. You want a better relationship with God? Spend more time in the Word. Whoa! It's the same concept. You want to build a relationship? You've got to build a relationship. You need to be with the person who's in the relationship with you. That's God, and he communicates to you with his Word. There are no Bible verses in the Bible that tell us that occasional time with God is sufficient for the Christian life. None. Instead, the Bible gives a different picture. Describes a Christian life like this. Suffering, endurance, joy, gladness, righteousness, sacrifice, and obedience. How could we ever expect to live that kind of life without constantly tapping into the only source that can produce those things? And if your only response to this encouragement, and I call this an encouragement today, If your only response to this encouragement is, I'll get there eventually, I'm on a journey, God knows where I'm at. Here's my response to that. Here's my rebuttal. You're right. God does know where you're at. God knows where you're at. And God brought you here today. And God made me write this sermon today. And God made me tell you this today. And God made me give you this charge to read your Bible more today. So God knows where you're at. And he sent me here to tell you that where you're at needs to move. Time to start digging into the Bible. Time to stop making excuses for why we don't. Time to start living and believing according to Scripture. Time to start developing sound doctrine. Time to start thinking theologically. Time to start being theologians. Time to start having conversations with theologians. Time to start reading good books by good doctrinal, solid, found, uh, solidly founded authors and preachers and teachers. Time to start reading Bible commentaries. <laughs> you guys ever read a Bible commentary? They're awesome. It's like a little sermon. Every page. Time to start doing some research. Time to start studying. Time to start thinking. Well, yeah, 200 years ago, they didn't have to do that. They had, got, they had to do that stuff because what else would they do? They didn't have radios. They didn't have television. They didn't have phones. They didn't have social media. They didn't have the news like we do. We have all that stuff, so we don't have time for that. Doesn't that tell you what the problem is? That those are things that are distracting us from the word of God? And that's why I call them ploys to distract us. Time to start living in a believing according to Scripture because you spend all of your time in it, not according to your misguided beliefs about God that have developed over years of barely reading the Bible. So I'm going to end with this and make a plea. I told you earlier that I'm going to make an argument based on my ministry because Paul does that, so I'm going to do it too. Do you trust me as your pastor? Do you, don't you, 
come to church here because you believe that I can teach you something. I, I can't imagine you'd walk into this church and be like, hey, that guy's an idiot and knows nothing. Let's go there. Like, <laughs> that makes no sense, so you're not doing that. So I assume, and if you've been here more than once, twice, three times, and you, know, you come here regularly or you're a member, I assume you're like, I believe that Pastor Mark... Uh, is a godly man who teaches the Bible well. At least. At least, right? And that there's something to be learned mm, every other Sunday at least. If you believe that, if you don't believe that, then why you're here, right? But I assume that you do because you're here, and that means that you trust that I must spend a lot of time in the Bible. Not only for myself and not only for my family, but for you. You trust me to know things that you don't know. When you have a Bible question, who do you ask? Usually your pastor, if not Google first. <laughs> Be careful on Google. <laughs> Why do you ask your pastor? Because he's supposed to know things. Isn't that the main reason for having a pastor so that you have a teacher? Ephesians 4 tells us that the pastor and teacher are inseparable. One qualification for being, el being an elder is that you're able to teach. So I assume that your attendance here today is your agreement that I can teach you something from the Bible. So I am rather astonished at how many times people who barely read their Bible at all argue with me about doctrines and theologies that they have developed simply by their illogical leaps from only a couple of Bible of verses they read a couple of years ago. I am not telling you that you can't ask me questions or tell me what you believe, even though I'm supposed to know more. I'm not telling you that I know everything. I am not telling you that I can't learn from you. Of course I can I learn from you guys all the time. And I am fully aware that this can be perceived as arrogant. But this is my argument because this is Paul's argument. I am here for a reason, and that reason is this, to teach you the true nature and grandeur and supremacy of God. That is my ambition for the church because it is the fundamental doctrine that is misunderstood and it creates from a top-down waterfall effect bad doctrine throughout all of your other theology. And that directly affects the way you live. And it directly affects your understanding of the gospel. Now in order to, to do that, I have to know more than you. I have to. I might not right now. There could be some of you here who know more than me. But I have to know more than you. I have to keep growing. I have to keep learning. I have to study hard and go to school and get educated and write papers and read books and contemplate these tough Bible texts. And I have to draw conclusions and I have to trust the church fathers. And I have to be in such constant communion with God that, that I can pray for the Spirit to fill me and trust in Him to work through me. And then I have to spend hours formulating these thoughts onto paper 
in as much of a poetic and inspiring form as I can. And then I have to bring those thoughts that are on paper to you in person, face to face, once a week, and preach to you with such passion and conviction that you are persuaded to pursue Jesus more. I have to do that. If I don't, then fire me. So if all of that is true, then can you at least trust, trust that the Holy Spirit is using me to tell you something massively important today? Can you at least trust that God is speaking through me to tell you that your lack of care for his word is not okay? Can you admit to yourself that not only do you not spend enough time in God's word, but that you simply don't desire his word enough? Can you admit to yourself that your lack of desire for his word is really just a lack of desire for him? And can you believe me? When I tell you that if you want to desire him more and know him more and gain more knowledge to deflect the false teachings and false doctrines about the nature and character of God, that you must be in his word way more than you are. And can you please, for my sake and for your sake and for God's sake, just reprioritize your life and open up your Bible more and feed on the word of God that will satisfy your soul. You have problems in life? Word of God. You have anxiety? Word of God. You have depression? Word of God. You have broken marriage? Word of God. Broken relationships? Word of God. Losing your job? Word of God. Don't have money? Word of God. Hard things in life? Word of God. Suffering? Word of God. The answer is right in front of you. Well, the word of God isn't going to pay my bills. No, it's not. But the word of God is going to teach you how to endure. Amen. And he's going to teach you, it's going to teach you how to respond. It's going to teach you what to do. And if everyone does it, the word of God is going to teach the whole church that this guy doesn't have a job and he needs money. It's our responsibility as his brothers and sisters in Christ to help him. Dude, have a thousand dollars. That'll get you by. Don't you need this to do? I probably waste $1,000 a month on garbage. Netflix, coffee, McDonald's, Starbucks, Three Arrows, good Christian company. You should spend your money there anyway. Um, <laughs> I could go on and on with the ways we waste our money. Stop wasting on garbage. Take it, give it to the man who needs it. If we all read the Bible, we're going to start believing that way. The evidence that this is not happening is written all over the believer's Facebook page and Instagram, and it comes out of your mouths when you rant about politics and the news, and it shows up mostly in your broken and battered marriages, and it shows up in your disobedient children, and it shows up in your misinformed theology, and it shows up in your disobedience and behavior. The solution is simple. Read and study your Bible more. No more excuses. Let's pray. Lord, we all fall short, myself included. We are very aware. And, and I also know, Lord, 
how this can sound very like legalistic, like, oh, we just have to read our Bible more. That is not the aim here. The aim is that we want to because we love you. So, change our desires. Create opportunities. Dump a load of conviction into our souls to be in your word, to know you more, to gain knowledge about you so we can grow discernment to be more faithful followers of Jesus Christ. In that, we will be satisfied. Remind us of your promise. You will satisfy. In Jesus' name, amen.